I have a, a little handout for you tonight. Um, would you mind, Daniel and Zach? Let me pass these out. Should have enough for everybody there. <clears throat> I hope, my plan is that every week during this study together, I'll be able to have a handout like this for you. I say that, but uh, that's my hope. I'm going to reiterate that. That's my hope that I will have one of these for you each week. Uh, these are basically my notes, the scaled down version of my notes that we'll be teaching from tonight. A lot of good things here, and I want you to have uh, access to this information. Okay, so we're talking about evangelism and the sovereignty of God. So we're going to ask a question here, because this is the big kind of elephant in the room question, is that if, if God is sovereign, then why is evangelism necessary? That's the question. And if, if you, you don't understand the first part of the question, we need to emphasize that first. And so the first question is, under this major heading that we're asking tonight, if God is sovereign, why is evangelism necessary? The first thing we need to do is then define divine sovereignty. And the second thing we're going to do and look to see if divine sovereignty is, in fact, a biblical principle. Here's a couple definitions for you. You have them there in front of you in your notes. What is divine sovereignty? I've got three. First, this is from Pocket Dictionary Theological Terms, a common resource that's used. It says, The biblical concept of God's kingly, supreme rule and legal authority over His entire universe, God's sovereignty is expressed, exercised, and displayed in the divine plan for the outworking of salvation history. Another definition from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, it says, Divine sovereignty is the biblical teaching that God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things. God rules and works according to His eternal purpose, even though... Events, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. That's very important to remember, isn't it? And then finally, a very simplified version of divine sovereignty. Wayne Grudem from his systematic theology says, God's exercise of power over his creation. Um, I might emphasize the idea that God's supreme, exercise of supreme power over his creation. Maybe it's the only change that I would add to that because it's not just a very powerful being, but it is the greatest, most powerful being, right? It's not just a God with power, but it is the God with absolute power. That is divine sovereignty. Now, the question is, does the Bible teach divine sovereignty? Does the Bible teach that God is entirely or completely sovereign? That he is completely and perfectly powerful and in charge and ruling over this world, this universe. Without question, let's look at some references. I have them listed for you there. So you can go back and look at some of these, but we're gonna just, I'm going to just read some of these. I'm going to go in order of what you see. Psalm 24, verse 1. Again, these are some references. This is certainly not an exhaustive list. I'm saying that to say there are more passages in our Bible that speak to God's sovereignty than what I have listed here, but these are some that I think are really good. Let's just look at these. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. No one else's. They belong to 
the Lord and the Lord alone. First, First Chronicles 29, 11, and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as, as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. That's significant, isn't it? You rule over all. And in your hand are power and might, and your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. That's a pretty comprehensive couple of verses right there. Okay, it says... He is great and powerful. To him alone belongs all glory and victory. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is his. His is the kingdom. He's exalted above all. Okay? There is no one who can rival God's rule or his power. That's what that verse is telling us. Job 42.2. It says, let me shut that door for me. Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, we don't use that word thwarted. I don't anyway. I don't know. Uh, I don't use that word, but we know what it means in context, don't we? That no purpose of God can be messed up. No one can mess up the plans of God Almighty. We can rest easy in that. That right there is so comforting that no one and no power in all the universe, whether seen or unseen, can mess with God's plans. That is comforting, because that's our God, and we call Him, that God, we call Him Father. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in all the seas and all the deeps, just to include both ends of the spectrum, right? The highest heavens and the deepest seas and everything in between. Uh, God does anything and everything that he wants to do, and there's no one that can tell him, no, you can't do that. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I, the, I am the Lord who does all these things. Did you hear that one? Because you think, well, God, is, God does everything that my eye sees as good. But anything that looks kind of bad, God didn't do those things. That was Satan. Well, that's not what this verse tells us. Right? It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. That's a sovereign God. A God who knows that He will be able to do whatever He wants to do means that there is no one who can challenge His authority and His power. Dan the final Old Testament passage I'll give you, Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nothing and no one can look to God and say, Why have you done? You can't do that. Why did you do that? Now they can say it, but the claim is that they can't be legitimized in their claim. Right? Just like... Jane and Lena, all the time, I do something. Why are you doing that? You, you can't do it. 
wait, no, let's not do that. No, I don't want to do that. They can question me all day long, but at the end of the day, actually at the end of the moment, at, it doesn't matter. You can question me, but you're being disobedient and you're questioning me, and it doesn't really challenge my authority. So that's what God is saying. Yes, we can question him, but it's not going to challenge or rival his true authority and power. All right, New Testament. Does the New Testament go along with this teaching of divine sovereignty? Acts 4.24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. All right, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Why do I mention that one? For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for those people's good. Who can make sure that those things are accomplished? How can that verse possibly be true if there were not a perfect sovereign power behind it? We would have no trust in that. All things work together for the good if God is actually able to do what he said. As long as the evil powers don't get one over on God. Right? But we know that all things do work together for the good of those who love God. And there's no stopping that. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, now that is a sovereign God who says, I'm going to create all things that there are, whether they are visible or invisible, and I'm going to hold them all together because I rule over all of them. I created them, and I rule over all of them. Rulers powers, things seen, things unseen. He rules over them all perfectly, powerfully, sovereignly. I hope you're kind of tired of hearing this. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. How could He possibly do that if He were not perfectly powerful and sovereign? He could not make such a claim if it were possible that something in this universe were more powerful than Him. 1 Timothy 6.15 Which at the proper time which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed, the only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords. Could it possibly be that there are some who don't believe that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign? Even though we've just read all those passages, and it's, it's undeniably clear that he is Lord over all. He rules over all, and he works all things according to the counsel of His will. He sits in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Okay? But there are some who might say, but I still don't, the Bible doesn't teach that God is, that, that God is in charge of all things. That God, God is not sovereign. 
In fact, we saw it on the video that we watched. Remember that? I think it was Todd White. He said, uh, the God is not sovereign. The Bible doesn't teach that. He's just wrong. There's no other way to say that than he's just wrong. It is a very clear, plain teaching of Scripture that no one ever had to teach me. I knew that before I went to Bible college, okay? A professor didn't have to tell me, now, we're going to study today, and I'm going to teach you a concept that you won't find in your Bible, but I'm going to tell you that God is sovereign today. No, I already knew that. I think by a simple reading of your Bible, you knew that too. In fact, J.I. Packer, who's a great theologian, um, he's at the end of his life, actually, um, but uh, he says, all Christians believe in the sovereignty of God. All Christians. He means that from a practical level. Here's what he says. You give thanks to God for your conversion. And you pray for the conversion of others. In those two things alone, you admit that God is sovereign. Because for what other means and for what other purpose would you be praying to God if he were not sovereign over your salvation and over the salvation of others? Why would you thank God for your conversion? You should say, thank you, me, for out of your sin and darkness, regenerating yourself, putting a new heart within yourself, and choosing to love God and follow him. I made a really good choice that day. I'm so proud of myself. But that's not the way we talk about our salvation, isn't it? It, it, it? The way we talk about our salvation is I'm so glad that God saved me because I needed saving. I couldn't save myself, but he saved me. Out of my depth of despair and sin, God saved me. And then we pray for the conversion of others. Right? We say, God, please save. They're lost. We need to pray for their salvation. Why pray for it if God is not able to do it? But you believe that he's able to do it. That's why you pray for it. So let's enter into this thought where we'll spend, I guess, the majority of our time together. This is a concept that we will all in this room struggle with, I hope, until the day we die. It's this concept that we're going to struggle how to put these two ideas together without emphasizing one over the other, diminishing one of the other, elevating one of the other, but to let them live in perfect harmony next to each other. And that idea is divine sovereignty and yet human responsibility. Here's why this is a problem. If God is truly sovereign, that is, he rules over all and he does whatever he wants to, all things work together according to the counsel of his will, that means God is going to do whatever it is that he wants to do. True, we just read that. Now, on the other hand, there is human responsibility. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. 
Now, there are more than that, and we're going to get to them. But just think about that, the, the gospel call. There is human responsibility. The question is, we're not fully going to answer this question. We're just going to look at the concept tonight. But this is ultimately where the question goes, is that if God is truly all-powerful and rules over all, then he can save whoever he wants to save. Or God is not powerful enough and he just tries to save as many as he can. Because God is either not powerful enough, not capable, or he is not willing to save all. Or he's willing to save all But he is powerful enough, but yet not all people are saved. Or maybe he is all-powerful, but he's not willing that all people would be saved. One of those is true. Two things that are true in this moment that we're discussing is that there is truly divine sovereignty, unquestionably. And there is also truly human responsibility. We are responsible for our sins. And yet we are also responsible to respond in faith to the gospel call. How do those two things work together? And maybe if this isn't a problem for you yet, um, I, I hope it will become clear. Um, it says in your notes there, why do some seem to reject the divine sovereignty? Because it seems as though the Bible is very clear that man is responsible for his sin. But yet the Bible is also very clear that but God is sovereign. If God ordains all things that come to pass, how can man be held responsible? If you've never asked that question, then you've never considered that either you are not responsible or that God is not sovereign because the two things don't seem to fit together. If God ordains all things that come to pass, he's working all things to the counsel of his will and he's going to do whatever he wants to do, but yet man is responsible. How could man possibly be responsible for something that God didn't do? If God wants to do it, he's going to do it, but yet God didn't do it, so how can man possibly be held responsible for that? Maybe if the question isn't clear to you yet, it will be when we read a couple of texts. I'll say first, no, let's read these texts first. Let's read these texts. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Now, this is Isaiah chapter 10, so we've already been there on a Sunday morning. And this is one that you probably remember. Because this was a big deal. It was probably one of my, you know, hour and 10, hour and 15 minute sermons. It was probably one of those. <coughs> Excuse me. Because this is, this holds within it a concept that is very difficult to grasp. And yet the reality of it is very clear. But yet it's hard to comprehend. It's hard for us to settle on the concept that God is both sovereign and yet man is responsible. Isaiah 10, 5 through 7. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. 
Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my own wrath I command him to take spoil, seize plunder, tread them down like mire in the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Now, let me remind you of what this is saying. Woe to Assyria. This is God saying, woe to you, wicked people. Responsible. They are responsible for their sin, right? Check. The rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. God. So, if we get this straight, what's happening is that there is the Assyrian army who is wicked, but yet their wickedness on the destruction of people is actually not the Assyrians destroying them at all, but it is God destroying the people through the hands of the Assyrians, and yet God says, woe to you Assyrians, but at the same time God says, but I'm using the Assyrians as my wrath against the people. So you might, but how can God possibly hold the Assyrians accountable to something that God is doing? Right? That seems so, that, that doesn't make sense. But that is obviously what's happening here. Verse 7 says, But he does not so intend, that is, the nation of Assyria does not so intend to be used as God's instrument. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations. And so what does God do? God uses the evil intent of their heart as his instrument of wrath. But yet the evil plans in the hearts of the Assyrians is what they are held responsible for. But what God is doing is using them as an instrument to do what he wants to do, even though the people are still held responsible for their sin. But without their sin, God would not have been able to accomplish his wrath. Seems to not make sense. That's a lot of... I don't know what's going on there. Okay, let's look at another one. Let's look at a New Testament example. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Maybe, I think a little bit more simple. Acts 2, 22 and 23, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, whose plan was it to kill Jesus? The lawless men or God? The answer is? Both. It's both. God put Jesus to death through the hands of lawless men who were held accountable for their sin, but yet without their sin, God was not, a, uh, God was not going to accomplish redemption through Jesus Christ as he needed to die by the hands of lawless men to be crucified to take on the atonement of sins. Right? God used lawless, sinful people, but all this goes back, goes back, how? to see that God is working in their midst through a definite plan. It was God's foreknown, predetermined plan that lawless men would put him to death, crucify him. Was it possible that they would have had a change of heart in the last minute? 
The guy's about to nail his hand. He's like, I just, I just can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. Or Pilate says, listen, Jesus is innocent. I'm not going to do this thing where you're like, which one are you going to let go? I want you to pick. No, I'm not doing that. Jesus is who I'm releasing. Was that possible? Was it possible that God's definite plan could fail? No. Is it possible, though, that even in God's definite plan that he determined, that in that there is still human responsibility for their sinful involvement in God's plan? There is. There is. But how do those two things work together? How could God say, I determine that this will come to pass, and yet the people that are involved are going to be held accountable for their sin and their involvement? You might say, how can anybody, listen, God, how can you hold people accountable for something that you're seemingly determining that they do? How can you, God, if you are God and if you are good and if you are powerful, how can you hold people accountable to something that you planned for them to do? Seems unjust on God's part. It, it actually, it, let's admit that it kind of does at the outset seem unjust on God's part. But it is not. We're going to see that very soon. I want to read two more verses that go kind of hand in hand with this. Um, this is Acts 4, 27 and 28. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, people of Israel. Listen, what were they gathered together to do? To do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. There is no other way to understand that other than that God predetermined what would happen through the hands of who? Hey, he named names here. Herod and Pontius Pilate. Two specific individuals in history, in time, that God created and placed there to put Jesus to death, and those men were held accountable for their sin. That's what it says, and it's very plain what it says. They were placed there to do, verse 28, whatever your hand and plan predestined to take place. Isaiah 53.10, so it was the plan of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people of Israel there that were saying, crucify him. They're the ones that put him to death, right? But Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, right? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So whose will was it that Jesus be put to death? The people yelling, crucify him. Pilate giving approval. Whose will was it? Well, it was all of theirs. But without the will of God and his predeterminate plan for that to take place, let's move on to another question here. Does a high view of God's sovereignty necessarily produce a low view of man's responsibility? I'm going to say that again. It's in your notes. Does a high view of God's sovereignty necessarily produce a low view of man's responsibility? That is, hey, listen, if God wants me to do it, he'll make me do it, okay? But until that time, I'm not going to do it. 
What do you think about that? That's a high view of God's sovereignty, low view of man's responsibility, right? If God doesn't want me to do this, right, he'll stop me before I do it, okay? I'm about to do it. God, if you don't want me to do it, stop me right now or I'm going to do it. I'm just waiting. Okay, God didn't stop me from doing it, so clearly he doesn't care. High view of God's sovereignty, low view of man's responsibility. God doesn't either force me to do it or force me to stop doing it, then he must approve because he is sovereign. That seems silly, doesn't it? Because it is silly. So then how do we reconcile the concepts of divine sovereignty, human responsibility? Because they seem to not quite fit together. In this question, Charles Spurgeon said, I never reconcile friends. Because friends don't need to be reconciled, they're friends. They live together in partnership without needing to be fixed. We just need to be comfortable with the fact that they're friends. Okay, that's what Charles Spurgeon says. Wayne Grudem says this. I don't think I have this in your notes, but I thought this was good. He says, it seems better to affirm that God causes all things to happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results for which we are held accountable. However, the tendency is to emphasize one to the detriment of the other. If we emphasize human responsibility... We're going to put God's sovereignty low. If I don't just act and do it, then God's not going to be able to do it. Or, if God wants to do it, he'll do it. I'm going to take a nap. You see the two extremes of those? But how do we live with them working together? Or maybe it is that the reason that we have a hard time with this is because it's not settled within our theological conscience. And I think that's the problem. I think that is the problem. We don't have a theology that tells us how these things work together because we always hear one emphasized to the detriment of the other. And we say, well, I guess that's the way it has to be. How do we let these things work together? And I believe the answer is found for us in Romans 9, the taboo chapter of the Bible, okay, which is where we're going to look next. Romans chapter 9, verses uh, 6 through 24. Let's see what it says. Remember I said the question earlier, it seems that God, or we might say if we're asking a question, is God unjust for determining things with particular individuals and yet holding those particular individuals accountable to what they did? There is no problem with that if you understand that men is already condemned as he stands. Do you remember when we talked about Jesus coming into the world John 3, 16, remember we talked about that? And then we looked at verse 17 also because you know that verse is important too. And then we looked at 18 and 19. And what did it say about when Jesus entered the world as the light of the world? That the world was already in complete darkness. That men was already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to give life. 
Men was already condemned. He didn't need to do that. So is God unjust for condemning guilty sinners? Never. Never. Okay, so if we understand that, if we understand that there is true human responsibility, but yet there is also true divine sovereignty, then Romans 9 really helps us to just be at ease with that. But the way that Paul helps us to be at ease with that is still difficult. When you leave here tonight, I hope, unless you've, it, it could be that you have already been asking, you've been dealing with this stuff for years, you've, you've kind of looked at it, you've studied it, you've been through different, you know, you could have already kind of had a settling of your heart uh, of these circumstances. I've been wrestling with these issues for years in my studies. Um, I hope that for those of you who have not been wrestling with these things, that you leave here confused and wanting to know answers to questions. If you don't leave here confused and you also don't know how divine sovereignty and human responsibility work, there's a problem with you. But if you leave here tonight and you're confused and you just, I don't understand how that could work, I just, but I thought it was this way, but how can that be? That's where I hope you're at. Okay? But if you're kind of beyond that and you say, man, yeah, five, ten years ago, I was, man, I was so confused. Let me tell you some of the things that really helped me settle that issue. You could be on that level. You need to help those people around you because this is one of those issues that is left unchecked in many of our churches and it's just glazed over and people have so many questions and you're given a minimal answer and it's not biblical and what are we supposed to do with that? Okay, we will not be that church. This is a difficult issue, and I admit that fully, but we're going to see what the scriptures have to say about it. And we're not going to act like certain passages and chapters of our Bible don't exist. Romans 9, verses 6 through 24. Let, let's just, uh, here, I'm going to open my Bible. Now, I'm not, I'm not like opening my Bible for the first time. I have my Bible open here, okay? But I'm just saying. I'll open my physical Bible. Let's start back at the beginning of, of uh, actually, okay, so this comes in context of chapter 8, which I can't really get into right now. So never mind. Let me, let me throw that out. We'll do that next week. <laughs> Let's just start where I had intended, verse 6. We're at LSR at 730. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all of the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be, na uh, offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return. Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca is conceived and born of children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works done by, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Verse 14, this is the question that we have. 
what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because there were two babies. And before they were born and before they had done anything, either good or bad, God chose one of them. But that seems unjust on God's part. And you're right. It does seem that way. And that is the natural question we should have, and that's why Paul asks it. Paul is no fool. And he says, shall we say that is there injustice on God's part for having mercy on him and not having mercy on the other? Is it unjust for God to punish guilty sinners? Is it unjust for God to punish guilty sinners? No. It is perfectly just, good, and right that God punish guilty sinners. So if God chooses to have mercy on some, is he unjust for doing that? No. Would he be perfectly, unju- perfectly just having mercy on none? There you go. Okay, but we have a problem with, well, if you're going to have mercy on one, you've got to have mercy on all. But are all people, do, do all people get the mercy of God on their life? No, so why have we never wrestled with the answer to why that is? By no means, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But then you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Good question. I think. Perfect question. Uh, How could God possibly find fault in someone who does what God had intended for them to do? Take Pharaoh, for example. It says God raised him up. God made Pharaoh for the purpose of raising him up as Pharaoh that he might show his power on him. How do you think Pharaoh felt about that? Probably not very good. Do you remember all the bad stuff that happened to Pharaoh? So that's why Paul says, so then why, so then you will say to me, how does God find fault? That is, how are humans responsible for something that God didn't do? Having mercy on them. How is Pharaoh held accountable to God? God is the one that chose to not have mercy on Pharaoh, so then how could he possibly find fault with Pharaoh? Because it was God is the one who chose to not have mercy on him. What's the answer? Is that we are all born innately with sin and we are all condemned as we stand in this world. Therefore, it is not on man's part. It is not as though man is entitled to God's mercy. Man is entitled to God's wrath. That's the one thing we have to understand. Man is entitled to wrath, not mercy. So therefore, if God chooses to have mercy on some... God gets the glory for that, and he is completely justified in that. If God had mercy on only one, he would be justified. Here's Paul's answer, and here's our answer. I think it's probably a good idea that the biblical answer is our answer. Verse 20. Why, how could he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
What's the answer to that, by the way? Who can who in all this world, and the visible or invisible or rules or dominions or authorities, who can resist what God's hand purposes? We already read that. There isn't one. For he is the ruler over all, and he does all that he intends. Okay, so who can resist his will? Natural answer is, well, none, I suppose. So then the answer is, verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Answer? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Uh, no. Well, first of all, because it's an inanimate object, but you get the idea is that the potter is the one who gets the choice to make the vessel, not the vessel. Okay, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, he says, think about this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, listen to this language, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Vessels made by the potter, some made for dishonorable use, and some, as the text says, some prepared beforehand for destruction, and other vessels prepared beforehand for mercy. That is very, very clear language about a potter and his vessels. God is the potter, we are the clay. We already know that. But we refuse to believe that God can make whatever kind of vessel he wants. All of the vessels, by the way, are broken. None of them are perfect. None of them deserve honorable use. None of them deserve mercy. But God determines that some of his vessels are used honorably and for mercy. So is he unjust in saying that those that are broken will be for dishonorable use? They're on the clearance shelf at the fragrant mushroom, okay? Because they didn't turn out right. Is God unjust on putting them on that shelf? No, they were broken. Maybe they're even thrown in the trash. Who sent them there? Who broke them? You broke yourself. Your own sin is the cause of your detriment and your condemnation. But thanks be to God that we have had mercy on us by faith in Jesus Christ and the regeneration of the Spirit inside of us. What in the world does all that have to do with evangelism? Everything. Everything. This has everything to do with evangelism. How could we possibly say to someone, repent and believe and pray for them if we don't believe that God is truly sovereign and yet man is truly responsible for his sin? How could we ever proclaim the gospel if we don't believe in a sovereign God and a responsible human being? I think if we get our theology of evangelism right, we will not be able to stop ourselves from evangelism. That's what I think. That's what I'm convinced of. If we truly understand the sovereignty of God and how it works in evangelism, 
I believe that we will evangelize. I think the problem is theological, not practical. Many churches try to fix the problem of evangelism by making events and outings and programs and tracks and stuff like that. Not to say that any of those are inherently bad. I'm just saying that's not the solution. The solution is theological. The solution is that do we truly believe that God is able to save whoever he wants and that you are simply a a vessel used for him, a tool, just as the Assyrians were the rod of his anger. Maybe you were the rod of his mercy for someone else. Because God has so chosen to use us as the means of saving them whom he will have mercy. That's the way God chose to do it. How did God choose to save? Through the preaching of the word. You could be the one that preaches the word and God uses to save. In fact, that's what he promised. That's why he said, go and tell everyone about me because I am the powerful, all-creating God of this universe and I'm the only one who can save and I'm giving you a promise right now. Go out into all the world and preach the gospel and I will save them. That's my plan. That's my purpose. We'll end with this quote from R.B. Kuyper. The sovereignty of God comes to vigorous expression in the many missionary commands of the Bible and in the measure in which one recognizes the divine sovereignty. In that very measure, one must be zealous in carrying out those commands. If that last phrase doesn't make sense to you, I want you to read it again. I printed these notes out for you because I hope, I hope that this is challenging for you. It's challenging for me. And I hope it's challenging for you. So I want us to work over these next several weeks together on these theological concepts, building a case that the divine sovereign God of the universe has commissioned us to be his instruments of saving. That's his purpose for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you that you are good and sovereign. We see that in your word. I pray, God, as we read these things and study these concepts, God, give us understanding. These things, I believe, in talking about human responsibility and yet divine sovereignty, these are some of the most complicated things in all of Scripture, I believe. And we need your understanding. We need wisdom. We need clarity. And I pray that you would help us to understand and that in our understanding that you would push us forward, you would use that to create in us a passion and a desire for evangelism. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.